Hello everyone, we're going live. Here they come. Here comes the posse. Everybody's joining. Hello everybody. Welcome to Ask the Ascetic Mentor, Lulu. This is early for you. Welcome. Good to see you. I feel like I haven't talked to you in a while. Be nice to catch up one of these days. Tracy is one of the usual posse members, so she's always on board. Good to see you, Tracy. Cosmetic nurse. Um, you're an aesthetic nurse also, really. Cosmetic. I, th I like the word aesthetic because it sort of takes it to a higher level than cosmetic, I think. That's just my own personal opinion. But you got to brand whatever you got, right? So, hey, Lulu. Um, Lulu's one of our student advisors, and when people call in and ask about, um, you know, courses and what to do and what's the path to success, Lulu kind of, she's like a guidance counselor for aesthetic mentors, so she helps people figure out how to get where they want to go and helps them maneuver and get some set up for classes. And um, she works with Sigourney, and together they're a knockout team. I think so, Tracy. I mean, just, I, I think, hey, MK, MK is the... I'm just going to call you the producer, and there's Spraza, who's always with us, uh, one of the usual posse members, and MK Horrigan, who's, um kind of comes up with the ideas for the uh, for the lives, and um, he's doing a good job with that, so, so thank you, MK. Um, um, getting some of the usual customers involved. So today, um, MK suggested we talk about touch-ups and, you know, some business issues related to touch-ups and what causes touch-ups and how to avoid them and, and kind of that whole thing, whether you should charge, not charge. And, you know, I think we'll, we'll get into that. But um, just kind of two things at the top uh, that I want to talk about. Hello, Teresa Vanderboom. Uh, Vanderboom, I love the boom at the end of that. Um, hey, JK, JKR Medical Leasing Company, Senior executive has just joined. She's in the house. Um, just want to talk about a couple of things. I did learn something today, and JKR may get uh, a kick out of this. I learned something from a patient today. I, I learned a lot from patients, and I think if you listen uh, long enough, you will. If you listen to what people are saying, you, you can learn a lot from your patients. And I have a patient um, that's a long term patient, and JKR will know who I'm talking about, who. Um, is in her 70s and has sort of an elongated upper lip. You know, as we get older, our lips get longer this way and kind of wider this way and kind of get flatter, you know. And over the years, she's had a lot of treatments, you know, starting, you know, more than 20, 30 years ago. And um, her lips were, you know, a bit of a problem over time. So, you know, I think what happens with lips over time is they end up staying big. You know, once you get to a certain point, they don't deflate anymore. You get that collagen synthesis going, you get some permanent deposition of the protein and it just sort of stays big. So now she's presenting with this situation where she has a very elongated, you know, upper lip and she's got a reasonable upper lip uh, in terms of the vermilion show and she was scheduled for a lip lift, you know, where we excised skin from underneath the nostril base and in effect we're kind of doing this, you know, we're kind of shorting this distance by cutting out skin so we're kind of everting the lip a little bit. So, you know, it looks more youthful. 
And as we get older, that distance obviously increases. So, um, you know, she was, she's a very uh, bright person and she's very intuitive and she's always, you know, brings in photos of herself. So she brought in like all these photos of herself from when she was younger. And she was showing me that she never really had a big lip and that this distance was, was, was shorter. Um, but she was worried about the distance out here. She's like, well, if you shorten this distance, you aren't doing anything for the distance out here. And she was talking about the distance from her upper lip to her nasal labia fold. And she couldn't quite understand how it looks. She said, I, I'm just going to look different if you do the lip lift. And I said, well, yeah, I started looking at the photographs and she just was really concerned that she was going to actually have too big an upper lip. And I, I sort of stopped, stepped back and I said, I actually totally agree with you. Um, if we do a lip lift, because what happened over time is she has a permanent enlargement of her upper lip. It's almost, you know, the same size as her lower lip. And she's 72 or 74 years old, so she doesn't want to look done. She doesn't want to look uh, unusual or abnormal. She just wants to look good for her age. So I said, you know, you're actually right. Hey, Joyce, good to see you. Um, I said, you're actually right. If you're looking at somebody, you know, when you look at someone, you just kind of look at their face. But if you're looking and every time you look, your eye stops at one point, like their lip or their nose or their eyebrows or something, your brain is telling you that there's something wrong with this picture because it keeps stopping. It keeps being stopped by something that's abnormal. And, you know, I, and I, I said, I think that would happen to you if I just did your lip. And Brittany, I'm talking about a patient that taught me something today about lips. That if I did that to you, I think it would distort your lip. And, and you know, you never had much of a lip. When she smiled, her lips went flat. But this was when she was very young, and that's just who she was. And so she said, I don't want, in my age group, people are very focused on people who are doing things. That, and if it looks unnatural, they, they talk about it. So she sort of said, um, I'm just concerned that I'm going to look abnormal. Even though this distance is going to be smaller, my lips going to be too big, and this distance isn't going to change. And I, I said, I 100% agree with you. You're absolutely right. We should not do the lip lift. Let's cancel the lip lift. Um, and we ended up um, doing a little wide ace down here for for a particular reason. But we ended up kind of working around the outside of the lip to kind of raise the lateral portion of the lip, and to enhance a little bit of the lateral of the, of the red show laterally because again she was concerned about the distance from her nasal labial fold to her upper lip and no one's ever sort of talked about it that way before but this patient sort of made me realize that she was right so the moral of the story is that just listen to your patients and 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 you know what i should have done was to, i should have asked her to bring in photographs of herself because i think after you do this stuff for a while you tend to just kind of go a little bit of an automatic pilot but don't we shouldn't do that we should evaluate each person like it's the first time we've ever done this. And if we look at the photographs of this patient from before, you'll see that she never had much of an upper lip. In fact, her upper lip is bigger now at 72 than when she was 40. So that's weird, right? So when people look at her now that knew her from before, automatically they're kind of stopping at her lip because that's not the lip they remembered. If I, if I were to do a lip lift and shorten it even more... Um, I'm I'm making it worse. I am making her look kind of done. I am making her look kind of funny. And that's not what I should be doing or any of us should be doing. So thank you, patient, for saving me from making that situation worse. Um, you know, we're not technicians. We're not mechanics. We have to be thoughtful and artistic. And we have to look at photographs of people because it's not, 
it's not who I want them to be. It's who they are, who they want to maintain being. And everyone is now focused on looking funny, right? Particular, particularly older generations. Uh, no disrespect intended, just being factual. Um, so uh, that was an important moment for me. Um, another, so the point again, is just really be better with your assessment of the patient and look at their older photographs and get inside their head a little bit and see what they want, what they need. Um, because no one wants to have something that looks funny and everyone keeps asking them about it. Um, so enough said. Second point, um, we sometimes look at uh, other, uh, practices, you know, as we have a sort of a consulting arm of the practice and we look at other practices. And one of the practices we were asked to look at um, was having this really high rate of touch-ups, right? So, you know, what is a touch-up? Uh, what does it mean? Do you charge for it? These are questions that Mary Kate has asked me to bring forward because they're real. And when you're starting out, it's hard to figure this stuff out. So we, you know, did a kind of a chart audit. Well, you know, let me see what kind of problems you're having. And let me see what you're doing, where you're injecting, how many units, etc. And we found out that the vast majority of patients who were coming in for touch-ups were getting underdosed and were getting injected in areas where there really wasn't any muscle or frontalis or, you know, corrugator activity and... Um, you're probably not surprised because you're probably all thinking, well, you know, Russo said a million times that dose equals duration. That's his E equals MC squared, you know, uh, equation, because that's all he talks about. So yeah, you know, um, if you're in a practice where you're constantly underdosing patients, um, you are going to be doing touch-ups, you know, I mean, if you want to call it that, um, but you're going to be redosing them to get the proper effect and the proper duration. So, you know, you're not really doing any good. In fact, you're probably causing yourself to lose patients if you're treating them so um, conservatively that they're either not getting complete relaxation of the muscle or it, their dose isn't lasting three to four months, right? And that's a problem. That's a real problem for patients. And they're going to just think you're not a very good injector. and. You know, if you think about it, the online, on the on label uh, dosing for neurotoxin, like for example, Botox, dose adjustment sounds better than <laughs> Yeah, let me, let me, let me uh, do give you the dose adjustment that you really need. That, that works for the first two or three times until you get the dose right. But if you find yourself doing additional dosing on a single patient, the next time you do it, just do the increased dose, right? But if you think about the on-label, the FDA-approved on-label dosing, let's say for Botox, the forehead, 20 units, the glabella, 20 units, the crow's feet, 24 units, 12 on each side, right? So 64 units for those three areas. That's the on-label dosing. That's the dosing that they use to calculate duration. That's the dosing that they use to get FDA approval. So, so you know, most people, you know, Allergan comes into some of the practices that they've done it for us, and they look at your average dose of neurotoxin per area, and it's always under that. It's always under 20, 20, 24. Um, and they look at retention as well. It's like, how often are your patients coming back? So, 
when you look at that, say, why is everybody underdosing? And I think when you're starting out, that's probably um, desirable. It's probably reasonable to be careful. Um, now I say, how about you just listen to me, <laughs> then see you back back in three months and still getting touch up. Kate, the NP, has a way of just cutting right to the chase. Just sit down, shut up, and listen to me. Let me jack what you need, and don't worry about it. See you in three months. That's cool. I like that. I like that. But not everyone has that, that strong approach that you have, Kate. But I do appreciate that. And if, if it works for you, I would do it. Because if I'm a patient, I'd rather have the full dose and come back you know, at three to four months then to be coming back in six weeks and saying, hey, this didn't work, or to come back in three weeks or four weeks and say, hey, yeah, I'm not fully paralyzed. I use the P word, sorry, or relaxed. Um, but when you're first starting out, I think it's it's actually reasonable and actually desirable to do a, um, hey, Jersey girl. <laughs> uh, it's, it's actually reasonable to do a conservative dose because the last thing you want to do when you're starting out is to create a ptosis, you know, or an eyebrow or an eyelid droop. Uh, to get an asymmetry, to get a complication that, you know, makes the patient really question your ability. And everyone kind of knows when you're starting out. I mean, you know, you haven't been around that long. So just be cautious. But the thing is, if you're going to do that, you have to explain it to the patient. You know, for example, saying, hey, you know, I haven't treated you. I did this to the patient today. If you, um, I haven't treated you before. I, I don't know, you know, what your tolerance is going to be for neurotoxin, how sensitive you're going to be or anything like that. So I'm going to give you kind of a middle of the road dose. It may be perfect. It may be too little. It may be a little too much. I don't know, but I think it's going to be safe. And let's see you back in two weeks. And then we can really figure out what that dose did for you. And when you see them in two weeks, you know, you might say, yeah, it's a perfect dose. We'll do that every time. Or you might be like, you know, I probably should have given you more, so let's do that now and get that over with. So next time we know, we'll give you, uh, you know, the additional units. Or you might be like, you know, I think that's a little heavy for you. I think you're um, probably very sensitive to neurotoxin, so we're going to dial back the dose a little bit. And these are all reasonable things. But if that keeps happening, right, if your patients keep coming back with inadequate dose, remember, dose equals duration, then you are not thinking this through clearly, right? So when we looked at this audit, when we did this audit of this practice, we found that the patients were, con you know, con uh, continuously being underdosed, and they didn't really know exactly where to inject it. They were injecting it laterally where there's no muscle. They were injecting it in these areas where there wasn't any motion. Um, they didn't really understand the location of the frontalis primarily. So uh, that's just being lazy, you know, that's just not understanding anatomy, not going to seek out the the actual information you need to know to become better. Always try to become better. Um, so, so having said that, right, let's figure out what a touch-up is. You know, what is a touch-up? Do you charge for it? How much do you charge for it? What do you say to the patient? Is it in your consent forms? All of these kinds of things. These are, this is what MK wants me to talk about tonight, so that's what we'll do. So I think the first thing is, you know, Try to be on label, try to give a full dose, try to, you know, get to the point where you are getting close to the online or sorry, on label dosing indication. Um, of course, we always have those patients who don't need as much. And sometimes we have patients who need more than that, but that's our own individual clinical decision. But for most patients, we should, we're probably underdosing them. If you look at the numbers nationally, we're definitely underdosing them. And if you look at the, the retention rate of most patients, if you see a Botox patient for the first time, um, the likelihood of them becoming a permanent part of your practice um, 
goes down significantly if you don't see them within the next four months. If you see them the second time within that time period, the chance of them staying with you is very high. I mean, I'm assuming you're, you're a reasonably good injector. So it's important for those first couple of encounters with the patient to be good ones because they can be, you know, be your patients for life. And don't forget, a Botox patient for me is like, is like a marketing place, like a loss leader. You know, you make money on Botox, but it's not a lot of money. You do make a lot more margin on fillers, and then if you convert them over to, you know, energy-based treatments, if you have someone doing other things, or if you do surgery or other things, you can make more. But, you know, the idea is that this is a recurring, it's like an annuity, or it's a recurring revenue stream. But believe it or not, like the average number of visits a Botox patient makes to a provider each year is like 1.2, 1, I mean, really low. Our retention rate was 2.2 or something, which was really well above the industry standard, not even three times a year. So our average was 2.5, and they were like, oh my God, you guys are great. I I didn't think that was great, but apparently it is relative to all of our other competitors in, in the area, national, uh, regionally and locally and nationally. So that's why they started talking about, instead of discounting your neurotoxin, say, okay, if you come in within the next three months for your neurotoxin treatment, instead of charging you 17 or $18 a unit or whatever you charge, we're going to charge you $2 less. So let's say you're charging 15 So if you come in, like today's June, if you come in before September 14th, uh, you will pay you know $13 a unit instead of 15 That is a real incentive to the patients because that extra visit is going to keep them relax, it's going to help the muscles atrophy, it's going to create better results, you're going to get better outcomes, you're going to get longer duration. It's going to be a better overall treatment for the patient and it's going to be better for you because you're going to see the patient more often. It's going to be a better revenue stream for you and you want to do the right thing for the patients, right? So we started explaining to these injectors, uh, you know, that they needed to do more uh, neurotoxin, higher dosing, and they were reluctant. They're like, well, I'm afraid to get it. Have you ever had a ptosis? No, no, no. But I'm really afraid. How do you, how do you, how do you get a ptosis? Do you know the, the mechanism? Do you know the anatomy? Um, you know, I think if you put too much, put too much neurotoxin where, you know, uh, too close to, uh, you know, the eyebrow or the, what, what, what happened? What are you, what are you doing? Like, what's the, what's causing it to happen? Um, you know, uh, it's getting into the eye or I, you know, they don't know the muscles, they don't know the anatomy, they don't know what they're talking about. So why are you injecting these neurotoxins? Why are you doing this to these patients? And you're so afraid of doing something wrong because you don't know what the right thing is to do that you're just constantly underdosing. So it was kind of a, a revelation. You know, you think this is a pretty unusual thing? Do you think it's pretty unusual that patients are, that, that patients are being underdosed or that providers aren't really cognizant of the anat. Um, uh, it's far more common than I even care to think about. It's really kind of horrible to watch some of these providers who you know, have been, even been out there for a while and they just don't seem to really get it. So kudos to you guys for spending time on Tuesday night trying to learn a little bit more because you know you learn from lots of different places and hopefully I'm giving you real life, real time stuff to help you because this is stuff that I you know, had to deal with all the time. And I, and I go out and I see people and I talk to people and I oversee a lot of other med spas and nurses. So I see all the problems. I see all the mistakes. I see all the errors. And guess what? They keep repeating over and over and over and over again. No matter how often I talk about this, um, I still see the same problems. So hopefully you guys are listening and it doesn't happen. So, 
So what is a touch up? So, you know, if you, if you, if you treat someone for the first time and you're doing it conservatively because you understand the anatomy and you understand the frontalis being very weak, you understand that there's four sets of muscles pulling down and only one set pulling up and you don't want to toast of the eyelid or the brow or you don't want any asymmetries, et cetera. And you've done a really great assessment and you figured out how much to put in it, you know, everywhere and you're doing a good job with it. You still tell the patient, well, you know, I've given you what I feel is the middle of the road, you know, semi-conservative dose because I don't want to create these problems. But we'll see you back in two weeks. And if you, you know, do need more neurotoxin, uh, we will be happy to provide that for you. But there will be a charge for that because, you know, we're just trying to be cautious. And most people are very, are fine with that. We even put that in our consent forms. So if someone comes in, you know, and you've done, you know, 15 units in there of glabella and they come back and they still have a little bit of motion and they still have some of those 11s and they're like, gee, you know, I was really hoping that these 11s wouldn't be there. And I gave you, you know, you, I paid you for the neurotoxin. I still have these lines. Um, yeah, right. Remember that conversation we had about, you know, doing a, a conservative dose so we didn't create any problems and, and that we were going to see you today, two weeks later. And if there's a, you know, if you need more, which you just need more, everything's great. You just had, you know, you just need more. Your muscle is very strong and it's very active. So you need more neurotoxin. So we'll give you the neurotoxin and we'll charge you for that and everything will be fine. And the next time you come in, instead of giving you 15 units, we'll give you 20 or 25 or, you know, whatever is appropriate for that patient. That's not a touch-up, right? That's just uh, a dose adjustment, as, as someone said here before, is a much kinder way of saying it. It is a dose adjustment. It's a learning step. It's, it's, it's our attempt to customize your treatment to get the dose that's right for you because that's, you know, your dose may be, is going to be different than the next four patients I see. Uh, and, you know, it took me a little while to learn what's right for them. And I don't know, it's not a cookie cutter place. We treat everyone individually and we try to get the best result for them. Remember, dose equals duration. So that's just, you know, a dose adjustment. And the next time they come in, you do that and say, well, remember last time we underdosed you a little bit. We had to do that second treatment. So this time we're going to, you know, get the right, try to get the right dose. We're going to increase, you know, by five units or whatever's appropriate and, and go forward. Now, you know, let's say you, you did all that and the patient comes in and, you know, everything looks pretty good. This is frozen, but they've got, you know, a little bit of extra motion out here or maybe just one side has a little extra motion out there. And, you know, you think to yourself, well, you know, was that frontalis muscle stronger? Did I, did I, did I not get it in the belly of the muscle? Did I go a little too loud? Did I go too medial? Did the patient do something? Who knows what happened, right? But the patient needs a little treatment because they have a little excess motion of the lateral portion of the frontalis. They have not even quite a Spock bra, but just, you know, when they elevate the one bra, it goes a little higher. So, you know, you think to yourself, well, you know, Russo talks about this all the time. It's not a big deal. It's easy to give a little bit more neurotoxin. So I'm going to give, you know, two, two and a half, three, whatever number of units you think is appropriate in the highest arch on that, on that brow and um, settle the brow down. You know, you might argue that if that patient's come in and spent money for 40 or 50 or 60 units of neurotoxin to give them three more and charge them for that. It's probably not that cool. You know, it's probably not super cool. So I, you know, consider that a touch up. I make a little note, you know, needed a little more on the right frontalis check, you know, be, do a better assessment next time, see if that muscle's stronger, whatever, whatever. So, and you know what? That, say, free three units goes a long way. I mean, it's not a lot out of your pocketbook. If you're paying $6 a unit and... um you give them three of those, it's $18 and change. So, you know, that $18 and change is going to get you a very grateful, happy patient who says, you know, 
that provider stands by the work. They really were, wanted to get it right. They didn't even charge me for the extra you know, for the touch up. Um, those are good things. Those are good things to have happen. Um, you know, part of it is just maybe our assessment wasn't great. Part of it was maybe we did, you know, go a little deeper, a little superficial on one side. There's a million technical reasons why it wouldn't be exactly right. Um, but next time the patient comes in and their neurotoxin is worn off, you'll be better at assessing it. And then you'll sort of, you know, you'll learn through, through that. I don't want to call it a mistake, but that miscalculation, that misdosing that's going to make you a better injector, but it only makes you a better injector. Hello. How are you, Tatiana? It's been a long time since we've spoken. Um, it's good to see you. Um, so that goes a long way toward your education, but you have to be open to understanding what happened and why, right? So, you know, to me, touch-ups are situations that really aren't anyone's fault. Um, and they happen less frequently as you get more experienced. Um, underdosing, uh, is, is not a touch-up if you've just trying to, you're trying to be conservative with someone and you sort of explain to them that it takes a little bit of time. It takes three or four sessions to get your dose exactly right. Sometimes it's the first time. Sometimes it's not. Uh, if you've ever treated a patient in the very first time, uh, had a ptosis uh, or an asymmetry or any spot bar or anything like that, it's hard to keep that patient. It's hard um, to keep them because they've probably been to other places where that didn't happen. So we know it can happen to anyone, anytime but it's a tough way to start a relationship. Uh, so do your best. So, you know, we've had patients where, um, you know, you've given them neurotoxin and for some reason, it just doesn't seem to be working very well. This is, this is a good one for you. See who can come up with this. Good to see you as well. Let's say you have a patient that you've treated five to seven times before with, uh, let's just say Botox in this, in, in this instance. And um, the sixth time you treat them, you use pretty much the same dose that you've established, you know, works with them well over time. And all of a sudden, you know, you treat them and everything's fine. You talk about their kids and the weather and their vacations and everything. Everything's good. And they call you like, I don't know, well, they come in for their next visit. I say, you know, Dr. Russo, I don't know exactly what happened last time, but, you know, usually when you inject me, it lasts like three and a half to four months. Um, but for some reason, you know, I, I noticed like at two and a half months, certainly by three months that it really wasn't, um, wasn't really la wasn't there anymore. The effect wasn't there. I started noticing my emotion. Did you do something different last time? Let me just check my chart, Janie. You know what? No, I did exactly the same, you know, number of units, same location. Everything was the same. Uh, are you sure? Yeah. Dr. Russo, look, I'm, I'm sure it's back. And usually it isn't back by now. And I know that over time, as you do neurotoxin more and more and more, the muscle starts to atrophy. You don't need as much neurotoxin. It lasts longer, but like, it seems like that's not working. You know what? Okay. Let's just try it again. Let's just try it again. I'll even give you a discount. Sometimes I feel bad about what happened, but let's just do it again. We do it again. This time she doesn't even wait for the three month interval. She comes in at two and a half months and goes, look, it's, it's gone even faster this time. Like I, I got two months. I noticed this was, was wearing off. Like, are you using like Botox? Like, what are you doing? Are you diluting it? Are you giving, anybody know what's going on? Can anyone diagnose the problem? Has this ever happened to anyone? This will happen at some point in your career. You have to understand 
what it is. I'll give you a hint. Brittany knows the answer to this because she's worked with me. Um, yeah. What do you mean by resistance to Botox? How do you develop resistance to Botox, Cynthia? Working. Yeah, if you work out, it does accelerate your metabolism, but not like this. It doesn't make Botox go from four months to two. Um, no, she she's not working out a lot. Doing it too soon because, because the receptors. No. So, um, Cynthia, you were very close. Cynthia's on it. Let's see if she comes up with the right answer. She said, I can't remember exactly what she said, but she was saying developing a sensitivity to it. I think you used the word sensitivity. Very close. Can anyone help Cynthia out? So you, you've been injecting a patient with neurotoxin for um, two years and they've been perfectly fine. They get four months duration. And all of a sudden, one, next time they come in, said it only lasted three. And the next time they come in, said it only lasted two. You're using the same dose, the same product. Body is getting, body's getting used to Botox. No, it's much more aggressive than that. She's, she's not working out a lot. Um, antibodies. Yes, it has to do with antibodies. What are the antibodies doing? What are the antibodies doing? What are they attacking? Are the antibodies attacking the part of the molecule that um, the 150 kilodalt nucleus that has the long chain and the short chain that's cleaving the snare proteins? Uh, or is it something else? Does it, I know people know this. I hope you know this stuff. So what is a Botox? I use the, this, in this case Botox because I'm going to talk about another product in a minute. But a Botox molecule is a 150 kilodalton chain, right? 150 kilodalton nucleus, a long chain and a short chain, surrounded by a sea of complexing proteins. All four neurotoxins, Botox, Dysport, Juvo, and Xeomin, have the same 150. Yes, Cynthia, I, I knew you'd come back to me. All of them have the same 150 kilodalt nucleus that does the dirty work, that actually does, that gets inside the nerve and does the cleaving of the snare proteins. So the part of the molecule that does the work is identical in all four, in all four formulations, right? Botox, Xeomin, Juvo, and Dysport. Um, What's different, as Cynthia points out, are the complexing proteins. And in this case, the patient that was getting Botox developed antibodies, because think about it, you're, anytime you're injecting proteins into a patient multiple times, your body can develop antibodies to those proteins. If they're not meant to be in your body, right? And the complexing proteins from, from neurotoxins are not. They're not found in your body, they're antigens, right? And if you have a high enough dose of those antigens, and again, it's mostly seen in not our cosmetic patients, but it's seen much more frequently in the, on the medical side, where they're using it for you know, spastic neuroplegia or torticollis, one of those um, injections where they're doing not 50 units, but 500 or 600 or 800 units. You know, you're using injecting it into big muscles. So they see this a lot more commonly. So they're developing protein, they're developing antibodies to the complexing proteins. So as soon as you inject the product, the antibodies attack it, and it doesn't even get into the, into the nerve. Hardly any of it does. It gets neutralized before it even gets to the nerve. So that process is real and it happens and you have to understand it. And the per and other people here said change to other neurotoxins. Well, um, MERS's product, um, I'm blanking on the name now, um, Xeomin. 
is a naked neurotoxin molecule. It's just the 150 kilodalt nucleus that they all have with no proteins on it. It's the only one that doesn't have proteins. But the proteins in Botox are different than the proteins in Juveau, which are different than the proteins in Dysport. So you can change to any, you can change to any of the other neurotoxins. Often people go to Zeman because they know there are no complexing proteins. Hey, Dime. Got a nickel I can spare? Um, that's Cassie. So it's important to know that because if that ever happens to you, you'll be like, ah, I remember Russo talking about that, that developing antibodies to the complexing proteins. It's rare. You know, we see it maybe, I don't know, once or twice a year, but when you see it, you're going to know it. Otherwise, you're just going to waste your time and, and the patient's money chasing something that uh, isn't going to help. So remember that. So that's kind of an interesting thing. Um, not a lot of people talk about it, but it is real. And in fact, I talked to the scientist who actually developed Zeman. and he used to work for um, Allergan when they developed Botox. And he was so freaked out by this protein allergy issue, not allergy, but this protein uh, antibody development of pro uh, against the proteins, that he developed Zeman specifically with no proteins to avoid ever having that problem with the antibodies attacking the molecule. So it was kind of interesting. He was an older guy from, from Germany. He was a delightful guy. And he was going through all the science and they were talking about how this happens and the more times you give neurotoxin and proteins, the more commonly this happens. But honestly, in the aesthetic space, with our dosing being as low as it is, it doesn't happen that often, but be aware of it. So back to um, touch-up. So we know dose equals duration. We know the on-label dosing. So how do we avoid touch-ups, right? So we avoid touch-ups by doing the dosing close to what the on-label indications are. And we do it based upon building the patient up to the point where we know that we're gonna get a good result and trying to push the dose equals duration model because the, law, the more neurotoxin you give them, the longer your results are gonna last and the more you're gonna stand out from your peers. Secondly, tell the patients what to exist. And we get a lot of, we used to get a lot of calls from you know, day two through 14 when people would be like, we're saying, you know, it's not really working. I still have motion or one eyebrow's higher or this and that. You know, 90% of that stuff takes care of itself. So explain to patients that it's not gonna work right away. You're not gonna see anything for a couple of days. It's gonna start working on day three or so. Um, and you're not gonna really see the end result of this injection for two weeks and then we'll see you back in two weeks and we can look at it together. So just, you know, just explain to them what happened because patients don't like when something happens and they haven't been told about it and they don't understand it. Also, you know, it's really important to do photos before you ever touch the patients because once you start injecting them, they'll start saying things like, you know, Dr. Russo, before you start injecting me, I never had these lines over here. And since you started giving me Botox, these lines developed. Is that possible? Not really. They were focused on these lines. They didn't see the, you know what, as soon as you change the curtains and the rug looks bad and the color of the paint looks you know, wrong, you have to sort of change everything, you start noticing other things. So just like anything else on the face, you start making the chin bigger, the lips look smaller, you start making the cheeks bigger, the temples look more hollow. You know, it's all connected and related, right? So you take your photos out and say, you know what? Let's look, oh my God, look, those lines were actually here before. I had people say, I never had this mole before you started injecting Botox. We know these things are crazy, but when people are hyper-focused on one or two areas, they don't see the other areas. Then when those problems are solved, they start looking for other areas. So do photographs to prove that, you know what, that right brow was always a little higher, or you know, that left eye was always a little bit more tonic. And you know, ideally you want to point it out before you treat them, 
right? If you're really good, you look at them and go, I just want to point out some of the things. In fact, if you have a TV in your room and you can bring the, their face up and make it as big as the screen and say, my God, look at all those wrinkles. Look how high that right brow is relative to left. Look at how deficient that cheek is. Oh, look at, like you even got a little bit of ptosis in your left eye. Do you see that? So then they'll never blame you for anything because it's them, right? I mean, not that you need to blame them, but you want to show them that it's pre-existing. So be sure that you do those photos. Really, really important. Um, also, set realistic expectations. So if a patient comes in and they're, you know, 65 or 70 years old and they've got, you know, really deep 11s or 111s or 1,111s um, and you do your, you know, your spread test and you still see the lines, you got to let them know that neurotoxin alone is not going to solve their problem. It's not going to get rid of the 11s. They have lines at rest and those lines are deep and it's like a crease in a piece of paper. Excuse me, if you crease it with your thumbnail that crease never comes out. So, you know, when you get a little older and you've been creasing your skin for 70 years, sometimes the lines are so deep that you can't do it with neurotoxin alone. So if that happens, you know, the patient comes in, that's not a touch up. You know, you sort of say, hey, you know, I told you that neurotoxin alone wouldn't wouldn't do that. And you probably need to have a little filler there or some energy basements or whatever, but usually it's filler. Um, that's a very dangerous area, by the way. So, so part of it is setting realistic expectations. Those, those lines are just so deep that we're not going to get rid of them all. We're going to soften it. We're going to smooth it, but we're not going to get rid of them. Um, just so you understand. So, so, so if they come in and they want more and they need another treatment, well, that's not a touch up either. That's just like an alternate treatment that you know, has to take up space you know, because, and they have to pay for it because they waited 70 years or whatever it was for treatment. And it's not your fault, right? They've got such bad sun damage and that sort of stuff. Um, not sitting really, yes. Um, also, what else can you do? <clears throat> because, you know, a lot of these patients, you know, no one needs just one thing. No one needs just neurotoxin. Even young people need skin care, protection, and SPF stuff and all kinds of things and hydrofacials and dermaglows and all that stuff. The facial assessment portion is my favorite part of the cadaver course, taught by me at Aesthetic Mentor. Thank you. For all of these reasons, setting the right expectations. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate, <coughs> excuse me, I appreciate you saying that because as you get more advanced, it really becomes the most important part of the treatment because if you can't figure out what side is which, which side is fuller, which brow is higher, you're going to probably make the problem worse. So you have to really be good at your assessment and really examine the patient well before you treat them so you can be sure you're doing the right thing but thank you for thank you for that and i i enjoy stretching people's brains and i enjoy seeing the growth that people have during that you know hour hour and a half whatever we spend together uh two hours because uh you can you can just tell people are going to be better and they by the end of it they can do such a better assessment than they could two hours before and it always amazes me at how people can grow right in front of my very eyes and i, lo and I love it and uh thank you for being part of that Never take just one cadaver course. Take at least one every year, every two years, because the more you know, the more you're going to learn from the courses, and the more you learn, the better <clears throat> injector you're going to be, the more confident and competent injector you're going to be. So uh, agree, and I got another agree. MK agrees on that. Um, so when you when you're seeing patients and you're you know they're coming in for neurotoxin fillers, sell them skincare, sell them SPF, sell them Diamond Glow, um, sell them on energy based treatments, do other stuff to enhance and maintain your, you know, so if you're doing a great forehead treatment, a great glabella treatment, a crow's feeding, 
Sell them something that keeps increasing their collagen. Do some energy-based treatments. Do some radiofrequency, ultrasound, laser, or something around their eyes. Um, do some to the forehead. You know, make your results better. Give them some HA5, some good skincare products that are going to make the skin shine. So, you know, it makes your result better, right? It's a simple, easy thing. Um, and it's a way of creating another revenue stream. And it's a, re it's a way of, you know what? What are patients paying for? Patients are paying for outcomes. Patients are paying for good results, good outcomes, and um, I'm getting the I'm getting the high side. Um, so so you're selling outcomes and you're selling value. So the more stuff you can do to make the results better, the better you are going to be as an injector. The more happy your patient's going to be. Patients don't really mind paying for good results. They actually want to pay for good results. They hate paying for crappy results. They hate being underdosed. They hate complications. They don't like people who aren't honest with them. They like transparency. But most of all, all that goes away as long as they get a good result that it lasts for a while. Anyway, I got to run because I'm running over my time. But it was great talking to you this week. Uh, it's been a pleasure. And I hope you learned something. Uh, go out there, be great, be confident, and uh, be your best self and learn a lot. Talk soon. See you next week. Bye, guys.